we are in the book of Ezra, as we have been for the last uh, five or so weeks, um, and and we are just kind of just going chapter by chapter, just kind of trucking through, um, and you know, a lot of times, I don't know if you're like me, but when, when I grew up in church, my experience was we'd go to church, and you never knew uh, on Sunday what the message was going to be about. It was kind of like a potluck sermon. You know, you would show up, and, and then all of a sudden, it would just be like, oh, okay, you might be here, and then the next week, you might be here, and, and that, that, that had its, definitely had its valuable points. Um, however, I think when we can go through a text of a book, um, and we can go verse by verse and chapter by chapter, understanding the context uh, as, as Heath has learned uh, recently, context, 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 right, um, is so, so important to uh, truly understanding, like, what, why did this author write this? What was his intention? What was his purpose? Um, you just get a much bigger picture of that. And, and this morning, we're going to see a really, really, um, really cool picture of how understanding the context of this book and things that we've already studied uh, is going to really tie into helping us understand a better, clearer picture of what's happening in our chapter today. So today we're predominantly going to be in chapter 5, finishing out 5 and beginning into chapter 6, just so you can go ahead and flip your Bibles open to Ezra chapter 5. Uh, but I want to just do a quick review of where we've been, um, just because, uh, you know, from week to week it's kind of hard sometimes to remember everything we've talked about. So just to kind of refresh our memories, here's a short review of what's happened so far. So in chapter 1 we have... Uh, King Cyrus, he decrees uh, to the exiles that they may return and build, right? He gives this order they can go back to their, um, to their home country, to Jerusalem um, in Judah, and they can rebuild. And how long had they been in exile? Do you guys remember? 70 years. Very good. I feel like we've, we've like just pounded that into your heads over the last few weeks. So <laughs> 70 years, they've been in exile, and now they get to return. Then chapter 2 is this very unique account of the exiles that went back. And so it just gives a list of names of those that come back. And we talked a whole lot about what it meant to be an exile, to be someone who's at home, but not really at home. Um, to be in this place that looks like your home, but it's not really your home. And then in chapter 3, the work finally begins, right? And so they start the work by worshiping God. They build the altar there where they can make sacrifices. They can repent of their sin. They can start worshiping God now after the 70 years. And then they start taking ownership. They start getting their hands dirty. They start the actual building of the foundation. And it's not a long time after that, in chapter 4, uh, just a few years of them working on this, that opposition begins, right? And so there's these enemies that come, these, these uh, adversaries that come, and they start just bringing all kinds of opposition and adversity to this group trying to rebuild uh, rebuild this temple. And so we, we found out at the end of last week, um, they ended up stopping work. So the end of chapter four, they stopped building for about 10 years. The pro all progress just stops completely on the temple. And they, they kind of turn inward and they start focusing on their own houses and their own things. And that's kind of, we talked a lot about how, how that's what we do in our lives, right? Um, sometimes God will call us to do something for him. And then we get distracted, we get discouraged and we just start to look inward and focus on ourselves uh, and the things that we have going on. And so that's what happened here. And then we get in chapter 5, as it begins, we get that God started to send these prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And their message was to get back to work, right? You have focused on your houses while God's house sits in ruin. And so they're, they're, they're challenging um, these people to get back 
to it. And so today, as we as we dive into to chapter five, I want us to really focus around the idea of fear, um, because because what we're going to see is throughout this account, there's been this fear that has taken over God's people, in this in this whole journey back and rebuilding of the temple, fear has played a giant role in their life. Um, and, and, and I think it's very evident when we have experienced opposition in our life that fear is a very natural reaction to that. Um, when we feel like something isn't going our way or we don't understand something, fear kind of jumps in. We have all kinds of fears, right? Like we have all kinds of fears. Some are like very, very valid and some are just kind of out there, right? Some, some, like if you ever, if you ever watch, if you ever look up the, the names of the different fears that people have, I mean, some of them are great, like cotton balls. And so I had a friend that was like horrified of aluminum foil. Um, like there's, there's all kinds of, of, of fears that are out there. Some that are probably, we may not see those as, as real. And then there's other fears that I think are very real. real. And so I want to talk for just a minute about one of those fears that's very real. That's the fear of sharks. Okay? <laughs> just tell you. Fear of sharks is real. If you don't believe me, you can ask Shaq. You guys, I don't know if you guys watched Shark Week this past year, this last, but, but Shaq was hosting it, and um, it, was, it was pretty interesting. But anyway, I have a very genuine fear of sharks. Uh, and I feel like it's a very realistic fear of sharks, because I've seen through movies and then also through documentaries of what can happen when you're in the water with sharks. Um, and I remember one year uh, in particular, um, it was sometime when I was in college, and it was during the summer, and a buddy of mine went to North Carolina uh, to one of the beaches. Uh, his girlfriend at the time uh, had a brother who lived at the beach, so we got to go for a weekend, got to stay for free at his house. And I remember we're out at this beach, uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, if you guys are familiar with Wilmington. Uh, and the beaches there are a little bit different. Um, we're, our family is used to going to Myrtle Beach, and so one of the things you know at Myrtle Beach, if you've ever been there, is that there's lifeguards. Like every couple hundred feet, there's lifeguards, and they're always watching. Uh, but at this beach, it was kind of one of those swim at your own risk kind of things, and you just kind of go out there, and there's not really any lifeguards. So, so me and my buddy, we're out there swimming, and we're having a good time, and we're kind of playing around or whatever. And, um, and it's almost as in, in, like in one of those movies where the two people, they turn and they look at each other, and then they look back, and they see this fin in the water. And that was, that was our experience. So we looked over at each other, and we were talking, and we both looked back at the same time. And we see this fin in the water, and it's probably, I don't know, 50 or 100 feet out from where we are. I don't know. It felt like it was, like, right beside me. And, and so then we kind of turn back in this moment, and we just stare at each other. And you just see, like, there's this moment of fear followed by a reaction. And for whatever reason, our reaction was to shove each other back toward the shark. I guess we were trying to get away. And so we're shoving each other back toward the shark and trying to run um, and get off the beach. And, of course, we get off the beach, and, and everything's fine. Right, But there was that moment of fear of like, now I am in this animal's, like I'm in his world, right? Uh, like it's, it's one thing if you go to an aquarium and you know, there's this glass and you're just like, oh, there's this cool shark and he's in my world, right? It's a whole nother game when you're in his playground, right? And you have legs and he has fins and flippers and stuff and like he can move a lot faster than you. So there was a very genuine, genuine fear that I experienced in that moment. Um, and we probably all have those things that we're scared of. So what I want us to do is when you, when you came in this morning, you're hopefully, you got an index card. And I know you've been waiting with anticipation of what are we going to do with that index card. So here's what I want you to do, okay? I want you to take your index card and I want you to draw a picture the best that you can of what that thing is that you fear. Like what is that fear thing for you? Maybe it's a shark, maybe it's a spider, maybe it's a situation, maybe it's, I don't know. 
It can be different for people. But what is that greatest, what is that fear that you have in, uh, that, that just kind of consumes you? Like, what is that big fear that you have? Okay, so you're going to draw a picture of that. And then after you get done drawing, I want you to get into a group, and I want you to explain that. I want you guys to share what that fear is with the people in your group. So, so three, four of you get together, do a group, um, and we'll come back in, in about a minute, and we'll we'll talk through. All right. So hopefully um, you had time to draw your picture and and explain that. Um, so here's what I want here's what I want us to do. Okay, I want everybody, if they would, for me. I want you to hold up your picture in the air because I want to see I want to see what the consensus. So mom is scared of the letter S. No, I'm just kidding. Two earthworms. No snake. Heights. That's funny. Um, sorry, I'm scared of heights too. Seconds. I made the picture looks funny. Um, not the fear. That's wow. Some of these I'm going to need some explanations for later. Not being able to draw is. Is it, I was gonna say, is that is that like peeps? Like you get an Easter? That's what that looked like. Are you are you afraid of peeps? They're just squishy. And... All right. So hopefully that hopefully that got your mind thinking about this context of fear and what does it mean to fear um, and the things that we fear and and we've seen this. If you guys remember, we've seen this happen throughout the context um, of, of the story in Ezra, right? We've seen this fear um, do all kinds of things uh, for, for, the, uh, for the people here in, in, our, in, our, in our story, in our passage. Um, and so it's, you know, again, I've, God is just so incredible sometimes the way that he, he, he wires and puts things in his word and, and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, but check, so check this out, all right? So if we go to Ezra, okay, and we go to Ezra 3.3, all right, 3.3, what does it, it say? So they set the altar in place, but why did they do that? Because they what? For fear was on them because of the people, and they offered that, right? And there's this, there's this note that they were, they were even in, in, the, in the act of worshiping God, there was this fear on them, right, because of the people of the land. There's this fear on them. Okay? Then we go to Ezra 4.4. 4. 4. 4. And it says, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid. Right? Again, because of the people of the land. So here it was fear. There it says they were afraid. Okay, so now let's go to Ezra 5.5. 5. I couldn't have planned this any better, how this all worked out, right? So let's read Ezra 5.5. 5. It says, But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius um, when, an answer, uh, when an answer be returned by letter concerning it. And so let me set the context for that a little bit. So... So there comes an official. We're going to talk about him in just a minute. But he comes and he's like, hey, why are you guys building this temple again? Right? And, and we know from, from the context up until this point, whenever somebody had questioned them, whenever opposition had come upon them, what was their response? They were afraid. Is afraid and fear. But something different is happening in Ezra 5.5. 5. There's something that is... That is, that is going on here that is, that is different. Their response is different because 
What is implied is they knew that the eye of God was on them and giving them favor in this moment, but yet they continue to do the work, right? We're going to talk about this more. They didn't stop doing the work. Even though this opposition came, something was different. They continued the work. They continued the work. And so we ask, well, what was different, right? What changed between chapter 4 and chapter 5 that now when, when somebody comes and questions what they're doing, that they don't stop. They don't just don't throw their hands up and say, well, we can't do this anymore. And so part of that, part of the answer to that, we find in this phrase of the eye of God was on them. The eye of God was on them. Uh, because it also says in Psalm 33 that the eye of the Lord is on those who fear what? Fear him. And what I'm going to submit to you this morning is that their fear didn't necessarily change, but the object of their fear changed. The one that they uh, were so scared of was the people of the land. But they start here to start to fear God. We're going to talk about that this morning. What does it mean for us to fear God, to have a fear of God, right? It says, those who fear him, all those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. We talked about last week how at the same time that a lot of this is going on, God's also sending prophets to speak a word of encouragement, to challenge the people. And one of those prophets was a guy named Haggai. Very, very small book within the minor prophets, the book of Haggai. And Haggai is happening at the same time, and he's kind of, as he's delivering the message, he's also giving us his commentary on what's happening with the Israelites as they return and they start to rebuild. And so in Haggai chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 12, it says this, and this is where we get the context of what had changed. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and, and Joshua, the son of Josadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. So remember, Haggai had told them prior to this, we talked about this last week, that they needed to get back to work. God was not pleased that they had turned inward and were focusing on their houses while his house just lay in shambles. And so they obeyed what happened. And then look what it says. And the, fear, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit. You guys remember that? Does that, does that click anything in your minds? Chapter 1, right? God stirred up the heart of Cyrus, and he also stirred up the hearts of the leaders. And so here, God is stirring up the hearts again of, of Zerubbabel, who was their leader, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah. And the spirit of Joshua, or Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius, the king. And so we see that, that something has changed here, and it's that fear, right? And so that begs the question, what is, what is the fear of the Lord? And I don't think this is probably the first setting that we've heard that phrase before. Rather, we've probably all heard the fear of the Lord, right? Whether it was your mama when you were little, and she said, I'm going to put the fear of the Lord in you, right? Whether it's been in reading through scripture, 
we've heard over and over about this, this phrase, what is the, the fear of the Lord? And so before we get into a deep dive into our context this morning, because I think this idea of the fear of the Lord drives everything we're going to see in the chapter, I think we need to just take a little survey of what does it mean to fear the Lord? And so first, let's just talk about the word fear as we see it in the Bible, okay? Fear. What does it mean when we see fear? And um, one of the commentators that I was, that I was studying uh, this week uh, described it this way. He said, when you look at the word fear in the Bible, there are several different meanings. And he gives three of those. One of those is like a terror that one feels in a frightening situation, right? Just this, this sense of like fear and dread that just kind of comes over you when you're in a scary, horrible situation. It was me in the water with that shark, right? It was just a sense of dread and fear that just washes over you, right? And so we see this in places like Deuteronomy 2.25, and, and, and it, uh, in that context, it's sharing about what God's going to do to the people. He said, this day I will bring, uh, I will begin to put dread and fear all of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. And so God's talking about how God is going to put the fear of his people into these other nations as he sends them out. Right, And so this idea of dread and fear, that's one of the ways that fear is defined. It's also defined, we also see fear used um, as this idea of respect in the way that a servant would fear his master that he is faithfully serving. Right. So in Joshua chapter 24, um, probably a pretty familiar passage to you, um, here's what Joshua is saying. He says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. It's this, it's this almost like reverential respect that you have for somebody that you know is an authority over you. He said, put away the gods that your father served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day who you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers, your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites uh, in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so it's this, this uh, respect almost that you have. And the third way that we, we see fear defined is a sense of reverence and awe um, in the presence of greatness. Right? It's, it's, this, it's this idea that you are around someone or something that is so great and so much bigger and so much power, more powerful than you then it's this idea that nothing you can do is but lay down and have reverence for this. And this is the picture we see in Isaiah in his vision of what it was like to be in the throne room of God in Isaiah chapter 6, right? Look at his response. When, when he goes in there and he, and he sees the glory of God, he says, Woe to me, for I am lost. Another translation says, Woe to me, for I am ruined, right? Because, of, because, of, because as I compare myself to the greatness that I'm experiencing in this moment, I realize that I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so we get these three different ideas, right? We have, we have as, we, as we look at fear throughout the Bible, we have the idea of terror. We have the idea of respect. And we have this idea of reverence, right? Or or kind of awe 
not great at spelling. If you, and I'll see. Thanks. Aww. Look, there we go. <laughs> it's a good thing about having a marker. You can just change it, right? So we get this idea of terror, respect, and reverence. And what this commentator was saying is, when we look at the idea, the concept of the fear of God, it's it's a combination of all three of these, right? And so when you hear, what does it mean to fear God? There's aspects of all of these. There's an idea that there's that we just absolutely um, are almost in fear for our lives because of the greatness and the grandeur of God. And God talks about, when he talks about the wrath that he's going to pour out for those that are not following him, that, that probably comes to mind. There's a respect because we are his and he is over us. He is our master. And there's obviously an idea of reverence in the, in the presence of the greatness of God. In other places in scripture, it talks about the fear of God. In Psalm 111, it says this, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and all those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever, right? So there's this idea in Proverbs over and over again, talks about the idea that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's this idea that until you truly can get this concept of fearing God and the greatness and the grandeur and our response to that, until you can get to that moment, you don't even start in the process of being wise. That is the foundation what it means to be wise the fear of the Lord it's the beginning of all wisdom and and I think that and just be honest as as I was reflecting on this uh, even last night as I was thinking back over what does it mean to fear God I think our culture in general has really lost this concept of what it means to fear God right I think we've really really lost it we've we've turned it into this very mild and meager understanding of saying, you know what, to fear God just really means like, just to kind of like him, like we would a friend. Like God's my best friend, he's my buddy, right? And we've kind of said that, that we've now equated that to the fear of God. And as I read through scripture, I'm, I just, I don't see that as the response that people have when they come into the presence of God, right? It's, it's, it is so, so much deeper than that. Um, R.C. Sproul, you guys might have heard of him before. He's, a, he's an incredible theologian. Um, one of the things that he, he says, one of the quotes that he has is this. He says, uh, we get very flippant and cavalier with God as if we had a casual friendship with the Father. We are invited to call him Abba Father and to have a personal intimacy promised to us, but still we're not to be flippant with God. We're always to maintain a healthy respect and adoration for him. And I think that just drives us to that moment to think about that. It's like, it's like in that moment in Revelation. So as John is writing about this moment, this vision that he has about what's going to happen, uh, what's going to come one day. And he, and he says this, he said, when I saw him, right, when I saw him, when I saw God, I fell at his feet as though dead. Think about that. Think about the amount of fear it would take for you to almost feel like the life had been just taken out of you. Think about the respect and the reverence and the weight of a being to put that on you to make you feel that way. And that's what John's saying. He's saying, when I saw God in his presence, when I saw him in his glory, it's as if I was dead. And I just draw this back to us, and my heart is just drawing us back to saying, is this where we're at individually? Because, I, because as, I, as I read the word and, and, and what it seems to say over and over again is that when we approach God in this type of way, when our hearts are turned to God in this type of way, it changes everything for us. 
Right? It changes everything. We go from being fearful people to people who are walking in courage and strength. We go from people who are kind of turning inwardly to people that are completely sold out and focused on Him. And so I wonder, do we, do we get that, right? Do we realize? And it's so much more than just this um, on-the-surface, very casual, flippant relationship that we have with God. It's deep. And so one of, the, one of the questions that people ask a lot of times, does that mean God wants us to be scared of him? Right? Does God want us to be scared of who he is? And I think the answer is yes and no, honestly. I think when we come to understand how big God is compared to how small we are, there is a point that, that almost would drive us to fear, to be scared of the greatness. But in other places, whenever God responds to his people, he has a very different approach to that. Look at Isaiah. Um, I'm going to have it up here. Isaiah 44. So God, as he's talking to the people, look what he says. He says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, uh, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Beside me there is no God. Who is like me, let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before him, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare who is to come and what will happen. Right? God's saying, look, there's none like me. And you need to understand that off the bat. I am God, and there is no one who even comes close to me. But look at verse 8. I know it's not up there, but look at the next part where it says, But fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. Right? And so in the same context, we get the idea that, that God is making this very definitive statement of who he is and that no one's like him. He also says, fear not. Right? When, 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 when we look throughout the pages of Scripture and we see where the presence of God comes into contact with humanity, right? what is people's response? It's always fear. Right? It's always fear when God comes into their presence, when God interacts with humanity. But yet God's message to them is always what? Fear not. And it's kind of like, if you think about that for a minute, it's kind of like, those two don't seem like they go together, does it? Like, it seems like fear, if you fear something, it's going to drive you away, right? So, like, when I saw that shark, the first thing I wanted to do is run away from the shark, right? But the idea of not fearing and loving seems to draw you in, to bring you in. So it's like, how do those two exist in the same space as we're talking about God? And so I want you to imagine with me for a minute that we are all out um, in the Himalayas for a second, all right? So just put, put, your, put, your, put your caps on, all right? I want you to, to kind of throw yourself in. So we're, we're out there, right? And we're getting ready, um, and this may be a, a stretch for, for, for some of us, right? But imagine that we're starting to, to, to make our way toward the summit, toward the top of that mountain, right? And as, we are, as we're climbing and climbing, it becomes apparent to us really quickly that a storm's coming in. I don't know if you guys have ever been up in a high place when a storm comes, but it's the craziest, most unique experience. I remember a few years ago, I was in North Carolina on the Appalachian Trail, and we were up kind of at this beautiful overpass, and all of a sudden, within, the, within like two to three minutes, it's like it went from a sunny day to the clouds rolling in, and you could, start, you could literally start to see the rain start to come towards you. And it was this incredibly, like, 
it was almost like scary, but it was, it was so beautiful as it was all happening, right? So imagine that we are, we're climbing up, right? And we're, we're not quite to the top yet, but we're, we're definitely too far to make it back down to camp. And all of a sudden, this storm comes, right? And all of a sudden, fear just starts to take over everything that we can think about. And so we're looking around frantically trying to figure out what we do. And all of a sudden, as we're looking around and we're trying to make our way through, we see that there's this cleft in the rock, right? There's this, there's this, little, this little cave, this little indention in the rock that we can go in and we can seek shelter, all right? And so as we're sitting in that shelter, protected on all sides from us from the storm, we can still look out and see the beauty and the majesty of the storm. And I think that's a picture of what the fear of God should do for us in our lives, Like, we should be so surrounded by the presence of God and be in the presence of God in our life that we can look at the power and the majesty of God, and yes, it is absolutely frightening. And we know if we walked out there in the midst of that, that it would take us out, no questions asked, right? But yet we can be safe in the midst of that because we know that we're His, and that He's got us. And I think that is a healthy understanding of what it means to fear God, but yet at the same time God says, do not be afraid. And I really think that that is, is what is happening in our story, in our passage. Um, because what we're going to take note of is that um, the response from God's people changes completely from what we had seen in previous chapters. And I think the fear of God is the foundation for that change. So if you would, um, join with me in reading. Um, I want to start out in chapter 5, looking at verse 3 through 5. And as we look through this section, we're going to see something that happens because of the fear that they had of God. This fear of God, in its own way, produces courage in the people. It produces courage in the people. Verse 3 says, At the same time, Tatnai, the governor of the providence beyond the river, and Shathbozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them. Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them, what what are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. And they, did, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. All right. Let's, uh, let's just pray because I really want this, to be a, I want this to be a God moment, not a just I get up here and have some words for you. I want this to be something that we can interact. And so we just want to, you guys would just pray with me. Father, we, uh, we just want to ask that you would come and teach us God, as we dive into your word, as we dive into uh, the context and the meaning and understanding of all that's happening here in this verse, in this, in this chapter, God, um, I just pray that you would, God, that you would teach us. Father, as we walk away today, we walk away with a true fear and understanding of you. God, I pray as we walk away today that, God, we would somehow be changed, not because of a word we heard from somebody else, but something that you spoke to us. God, I pray that you would just bring this to life in our hearts and our minds. God, challenge us, encourage us. Father, help us to 
uh, truly understand and to grasp the weight of what it means to fear you and to live as people who are uh, called to to be fearful of their God, uh, who is the only one who deserves all of that honor and that respect that comes with that God. So we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing that we see here is that it talks about this guy named Tatnai. Okay, and let's give a little bit of context so we understand this. Tatnai was a governor. He was a regional governor appointed by Persia. All right, and so he was basically like, um, if you guys think about, and, and I think this works. I'm not, I wasn't great in government, so I think this is how this works. If it's not, then just imagine for a second we live in a society that this is the same way. But imagine like here, we have a mayor of, of Franklin County. Right or in our <coughs> Rocky Mount Mayor, thank you. So we have a mayor, right? And so the mayor has he has some control of what happens within our within our little town here, at Rocky Mount, right? And he makes choices and he works and helps that. We also in Virginia have a governor, right? And so the governor, right, has a much has a much. Do we not have a governor? Well, not bad. Oh. <laughs> well, okay, president. Yes, president. <laughs> present situation we have had a governor and at some point we will again have a governor um man, really got a few analogies for us in an ideal place you have a you have a mayor of a town and then you have a governor who's over the state right and so the governor has a in general has a much bigger reach than the mayor would because he's responsible for more areas more towns and cities than just the one individual and that's kind of what we have here Tatnai, this guy, is a governor of, of the region. And so he has multiple smaller governors underneath of him. And so one of those we have already met is a guy named Zerubbabel. And he, he is kind of the governor um, of the area of Jerusalem. Um, and so he's been kind of set up and given authority and some control over the rebuilding of the temple and over this area. But Tatnai is the regional guy. He's the superior official to him. And so as that, he has a lot of control, and he has a lot of power, if you will, over this area, and he reports back to Persia about the things that are happening here. And so, and so Tatnai, um, you know, it's, it starts out in, in, in verse 3, and it says that, um, you know, that he and his associates spoke to the people who were building the temple, and they're like, hey, who gave you the order to do this? Who gave you the approval to do this? And by the way, what are the names of the people, right? I need to figure out what's going on here. Right? And so as we read this, we're just kind of like, man, this guy seems kind of nosy. Right? Like he, maybe he's just kind of one of these controlling guys and wants to know everything. But if we look back at the history of what was happening in this moment in Persia, it makes a whole lot more sense of why he was questioning this. You see, at this moment in Persia, we're kind of in this, in this period where the power has transitioned really quickly over a short amount of time. We're all familiar with Cyrus, who was the king. Right? We're, we're kind of familiar with his story. One of the things that we didn't understand about Cyrus, I haven't uh, shared with you guys, um, when he was a baby, his grandfather tried to kill him in a, in a play for the power. And so there's already some like questions going on here. Well, so then when Cyrus dies, his son takes over. Um, and his name is Cambyses. Cambyses is his son, so he takes over. Um, and he had to put his own rebellion down at the time. He, there's another rebellion that comes up, and so he has to do that. And he has a brother who tries to take over. He starts to lead a revolt and tries to take over, and he has to put that down. Well, then this other guy comes up, who is an Ethiopian, um, I'm sorry, an Egyptian, and he comes up and he tries to take over as well. 
And, and the, the popularity decides to side with this guy, with this Egyptian. And so there's this period where you have a guy who's, who's setting up as the king, who's really not the king, so much so that, that we find out then in 522, Cambyses ends up killing himself because of this revolt that's happening. And so you kind of have this guy who's in control but really isn't in line with the family, um, all the way to the point to where Darius comes in. And Darius is a dif- distant cousin of the family and ends up overthrowing this other guy and getting um, control back. So you can see there's been so much turmoil so that whenever a governor is seeing that there's a group of people kind of out doing their own thing, it starts to raise a red flag, which is why Tat and I and, and his guys were like, hey, what's, what's going on here? What's happening here? And so they start to ask these questions, right? They start to interrogate them, and they start to figure out what's happening. But in verse 5, we get to see how Ezra viewed what was happening, right? And he says, But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, um, and they, speaking about Tatanai and his associates, they didn't stop them until the report should reach Darius and they should get an answer. And, and I think what's really cool here is we see that, um, that Ezra, as he is viewing this situation, as he is looking at what is happening in this moment, he sees this as an absolute proof of divine protection of God watching over the building and what they're doing, right? That's why he writes it in this way when he says that the, the eye of God was on them, that God was watching over and protecting them, right? Now that they had turned their fear to God, God is now starting to protect them and watch over them. And we see this in other places throughout Scripture, that God protects those um, and gives help to those. Uh, one of those places is in Second Chronicles 16. It says, the eyes, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward Him. Right? Those that are, that, are, that are fearful of God, that are living in such a way that they're blameless toward God, that God gives strong support to them. And that's what's happening in this moment. And so what I want us to, to, to do is I want us to take about a minute and I want us to get in our groups and I want us to ask this question. Have you ever been in an experience where you felt like the presence of God was watching over you? That you've been in a moment, you've been in a place, and you felt like, man, God was there with me through that. Right? I felt like I had God in my corner when I went through that situation, when I went through that moment. Okay? Maybe it was a moment of fear. Maybe it was through something uh, that you didn't understand that was going on in your life. Um, but get, get in your group, and um, I want you guys to talk about that for, for about a minute. So God was looking out over them, right? He was, he was protecting them. And you start to see this switch in their response, right? Because as we read throughout the rest of this chapter, um, and in the chapter 6, we see that they didn't stop working in this moment, right? When this opposition came, when this, when this guy... Tatanai, who came, who had the authority to shut it all down, right, because he was over this region, he had the power to do that, they continued to work. And we're going to even see here in a minute, even in their response, it shows that they weren't scared in the way that they had been in the past. They weren't living in fear, but yet we start to see this idea of, of courage that starts to, to live out in their life, right? And that's why I said that the fear of God, I think when we can truly understand the greatness of God and how small we are compared to how big He is, and it's that picture of being in the cleft of the rock and seeing all of that circling around us, when we realize that we're His, it puts us in a place that we can have an incredible amount of courage to do things that we wouldn't normally be able to do on our own. And that's what we see here is that they continued to work. They didn't stop working. They continued on. Paul, as he's writing to the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 1, he says this. He says, 
It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether life or by death, for to me is for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. There's this idea that when we are in Christ, that he is ours and he is the root of our existence, we put all of our identity in him, that we're not fearful of what happens to our bodies. We're not fearful of what happens to us, but yet we can walk in this new sense of courage that we never have before. It's the picture of why we see as we look throughout church history of the martyrs who would go to their deaths singing praises to God because they didn't fear man, but they feared God. Amen. That should be the courage that we take on when we understand what it truly means to fear God. And so I want us to think about our lives, and I want us to think about what are those, what are those things in our lives, what are those situations um, that God is giving to us to be courageous in. I think a lot of times when we look at our life and we go through hard times, and I know this is so true, I'm speaking about my life. When I look at those situations in my life and I see those things that, um, that are not going the way I want them to go, right? I feel like they're an obstacle God has put into my life to overcome. But as I, as I look through this and I, and I understand, I feel like I should be looking at those as opportunities to be courageous that God's given me. Yeah, I'm not going to like going through them a lot of times, and they're going to be hard situations, um, and they're going to be hard emotions that we go through. But has God given me an opportunity to be courageous, right? And if I put my fear and I put my, my trust in Him, right, and I put it all in Him, I think I can be courageous, you see, I think courage is fearing God more than our circumstances. I think that's what it comes down to. I think that's truly when we find courage, is that we put more, more weight in fearing God and what he's told us to do than the circumstances that we're walking through in our life. Mm-hmm. So be thinking about that, right? Are there tough relationships? Is there something that God's speaking to you right now that you, you know that he wants you to be courageous in? And I think our response tells us a lot about do we truly fear him? Because if we do, it should start to produce this sense of courage. Yeah, I don't like the situation, and I'm a little scared, I'm a little nervous of how this is going to turn out, but I trust God a whole lot more. I put a whole lot more weight in him than I do this situation. So the fear of God produces courage. It also produces trust. And those places where we have to be courageous in our life, if we truly root ourselves in fearing God and understanding who he is, it should produce a trust in our life that we trust him to get us through or that we trust him for his plan in our life. So I want us to read, starting in uh, verse 6, we're going to read uh, the rest of this chapter um, as, we, as we read. And this is a letter that Tatnai, the governor, this is the governor's response. As he sends the message, as he sends the letter back to Persia, back to King Darius, he's letting them know what his investigation has, has found. And he's, he's letting Darius know, okay, here's the situation, what do you want me to do? All right. So starting in verse 6, it says, This is a copy of the letter that Tatnai, the governor of the providence beyond the river, and Shathus Bozenai and his associates the governors who were in the providence beyond the river sent to Darius the king. 
they, they sent him a report in which was written as follows. To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the providence of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and timber is laid in its walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders uh, and spoke to them, saying this, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish the structure? We also asked them their names for your information, that we may write down the names of their leaders. And this is what they replied. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are building the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed the house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and the silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus king uh, Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon and they were delivered to one whose name was, was Shathbazar who he had made governor and he said to him take these vessels go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem and let the house of the Lord be rebuilt on its site then this Shathbazar came and laid the foundation of the house of God that is in Jerusalem and from that time until now has been in building and it is not yet finished. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made of the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether the decree was issued by Cyrus, the king, for the rebuilding of this house uh, the God, of the God of, in Jerusalem. And let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. Right? So essentially, he's, he writes a letter and he says, look, we asked them what was going on and here's what they said. They said that King Cyrus, he gave them permission to build this. So we're writing this letter to check that. So we want you to look in the archives and see if these guys are just making this up, if this is some sort of revolt they're leading, or if this is really what happened. And so that's the letter that he sends to them. What I want us to focus in on um, in this letter is I want us to focus in on verse 11. He asked them what their name was, right? What are the names? Because he said he wanted to take note, right? He wanted to write back to, to, uh, to Darius. He wanted to write back and say, hey, look, he, these are the people. Here are the names of the ones that are rebuilding this. I want you to have that. But look at what their response was. I love this. Right? This shows me the fear of God and the courage that they had and ultimately the trust that they placed in, in, in God, not in themselves. They said, we are the servants of the God of Israel. Or, I'm sorry, of the God of heaven and earth. Right? Their identity was so wrapped up in who God was that even their response right, of who their name was they respond with, we're servants of God. That's who we are. You want to know who I am? I'm a servant of God, right? I think that's a beautiful picture of what it means to trust God. Um, that we can allow God to so rule and reign in our lives that when people ask us who we are, it's not I'm Russin, I'm this guy who lives here and does this, but man, I'm a servant of God. That's all you need to know about me, right? It doesn't matter what my name is. It doesn't matter my role in the story. Ultimately, all you need to know is I'm a servant, that's pointing everything back to him, right? And, and, and to be able to respond in this way shows an incredible amount of trust that they put in God. Literally, the Hebrew translation of this says, we are his, the servant of the God, servants of the God of heaven and earth. And I love that 
I love that picture that we are his. Right? Somebody come up to you and ask you who you were. How would you define yourself today? Right? You got the opportunity to share your story, your testimony of who you are. Right? I know in my life, a lot of times I use that as an opportunity to, to talk about myself, right? Man, I'm 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 Russin, I have these, I have six kids, right? It uses an opportunity to to share those things that that are all about me. But I believe because they feared God so much that they use that as an opportunity to make it all about him and to show him. Um, Henry Blackaby, um, author, pastor, a lot of you guys are familiar with him. He said this, he says, anything of spiritual significance that happens in your life will be the result of God's activity in you. He is infinitely more concerned with your life and your relationship with him than you or I could possibly be. And I love, I love that, I love that quote because we have to realize that um, that anything that happens is a result of God in us, right? Anything that we do that has any sort of eternal value is based on Him. And so, do we trust Him? Do we trust Him so much in our lives that when people ask us questions, we use those moments as opportunities? We use those moments to share our story of who God is. Right? I mean, look at, look at verse, um, look in verse 8 here of chapter 5. Um, look, at, look at how Tatani describes what's happening um, there. In verse, um, in verse 8, it says that, um, Be it known to the king that we went to the providence of Judah and to this, to this house of this great God, and they're building huge stones and there's timbers in the walls. What does he say? He says, This work goes on diligently and it prospers in their hands. Even just the work that they were doing was a testimony to their God. Even this guy, this, this pagan uh, governor, was able to see that, hey, something is going on here, right? Something is happening in this moment that is bigger than just these people are able to accomplish. There's something going on. So do we use that moment in our life to trust God, right? To trust him, to truly put our trust in him when we have that opportunity to share our story. When people ask us, what's your name? What's your story? Where are you from? Do we use that? Do we fear God enough? Do we, do we respect and love God enough that we use that? Or do we continue to look inward in our lives? Um, you know, what, what are those areas in our lives that, that God has given us to trust Him in, right? Is there people in your life that you know right now? I mean, I think we all have them. I know there's people in my life right now that I know that I have something I need to share, right? Am I going to trust God enough in that moment to know that if he's calling me to do it, that he's going to go before me and prepare that way? Am I going to worry about the fear of rejection and what other people are going to say, right? What are those opportunities that we have to trust him? So the fear of God is going to produce courage, and it's going to produce trust, right? Trust is fearing God more than our circumstances, right? Trust is fearing God more than the things that we see around us. So I want you guys to take another minute. I want you to, to ask this question in your group. What makes trusting God so challenging, right? In those moments when people ask you your story, in those moments where you have an opportunity to share, what makes it so challenging to trust God and to share what you know that he wants you to share? So the fear of God produces courage. It produces trust. But then ultimately, I think it leads to bringing about God's plan, and that's what we're going to see in chapter in the beginning of chapter six, is that 
even through this opposition, even through all of this, it gave them opportunity to be courageous and to continue working. It gave them opportunity to, to trust God, right? We, it's not about us, it's about Him, and He's going to provide, and so we're going to continue working. And then in, in chapter 6, we get to see what is the response, right? Darius writes back to uh, the officials and gives his word back. And we see that all of this was to bring about, this brought about God's plan to rebuild his temple. Um, so if you will, let's, let's read uh, chapter 6. We're going to read uh, verses 1 through 12. So this is, uh, this is his decree. It says, Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in Babylon, in the house of the archives, where the documents were stored. Um, and in Ekpatana, the, uh, the citadel that is in the providence of Media, a scroll was found on which it was written, a record in the first year of King Cyrus. Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundation be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stone and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury, and also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that it was in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. All right, this Paul's right there. So basically what's happening is he's saying that, look, I've made a decree, search was made, and we found the record. We found the record that, yes, Cyrus did give them permission to go and to build this temple. And then there was a decree that was made um, that this temple should be made and that, that Persia was going to pay for this. They were going to cover the cost from the royal treasury that it was going to cost to rebuild this temple. Verse 6. Now, therefore, Tatnai, governor of the providence beyond the river, and Chathbozani and your associates, the governors who are in the providence beyond the river, keep away. Look at verse 7. Let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews, right, Zerubbabel, and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of the house of God. The cost is to be paid to each of these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the providence from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep, for burnt offering to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, and oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer a pleasing sacrifice to the God of heaven, and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of the house, and it shall be, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. Wow, I know, we're going to get to that in a minute. I haven't seen that bumper sticker yet, right? But Ezra 6.11, and your house shall be made a dunghill. Um, maybe somebody can do that, I don't know. Um, right, but, 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 but just real quickly summarizing, look what he says, right? Essentially, he's saying that God, God's plan is going to come to be, again, like we've seen in chapter 1, Persia is going to end up footing the bill, right? Persia was going to pay for the project out of their revenue. They were going to provide the supplies for the offerings, right? This is crazy. They're going to, they're going to, God is so using this other nation that they're going, to, they're going to provide the bulls, the rams, the sheep, the wine, the oil, all of that sort of stuff, 
right? And, and I think it's interesting that the king, what does the king ask for? He says that you remember the king and his sons. Um, and we see this over and over again. You see these pagan kings that don't believe in God, uh, or, or in one God at least, but yet God is still so, it's still so evident by what's happening that he includes that in there. Hey, don't forget about us. Don't forget about the king, right? Persia was going to provide protection, right? Anybody who came to mess with this plan, that that person was going to be impaled, um, I love the language there. We're going to literally take one of these beams out of this house that you're trying to stop, and we're going to run that through you, right? I mean, talk about God's protection in this, right? And I think all of this is out of the, of the picture of fearing God. As they turn their fear from man to fearing God, we see that God's plan was brought about, that God was doing what he said he was going to do. Right again, I I, I kind of got on the Henry Blackaby role um, this week. I'll be honest, I'll admit to you. So I have several quotes from him. Um, it's kind of like one of those things you get started with Henry Blackaby, and it's just really hard to get off his quotes. But one of his one of his probably most popular things that that he says, one of his popular quotes in uh, a book that he wrote called Experiencing God, he says this: "We don't choose what um, what we will do for God. He invites us to join him." where he wants to involve us. And I think that's what we see in this picture was that God was bringing about his plan. God was going to rebuild his temple. And he invited the Jews, he invited these people to come and be a part of his plan. And, and I think God, God does the same thing for us, right? As we go through situations in life, we think that, man, I'm doing these great things for God. And I think what we have to realize is that, man, I get to be a part of what God's already doing. God's inviting me to be a part of that. When I fear him and when I live under his submission and when I live in that place where I trust him completely and I have courage to do what he's asked me to do, then I realize that I get to be a part of his story. It's no longer about Russ's story. It's no longer about Ross's story or Joe's story or Sam's story. We're just little pieces in God's story. We start to see everything around us in a much bigger picture. And so what is that? Like, what's the point for us today, right? How do we, how do we live that out? And I think, I think this is something we've, we've shared before, but I, but I think it's just so true. Um, I think for all of us, we have to get to that moment where we just put our yes on the table, right? When we realize that because of who God is and because of who we are, that our yes is on the table. And so when we put our yes on the table, it's, it's not like we put it on the table and we can take it back, right? But we're putting the yes on the table. And whatever it is that God calls us to do in, in our lives, that our yes is already on the table, and so if God calls you to go and to do something sacrificial for him, then your yes is on the table. If God calls you to go and to uh, share something with somebody, and yes, it's going to be uncomfortable and it's going to be hard, our yes is already on the table. No matter what it is, our yes is on the table. It's that if we flash back um, at the beginning, we shared, um, or I shared in Isaiah chapter 6 about this moment in the throne room, right? And we, we talked about um, where Isaiah was just saying, man, I am I'm ruined. I'm completely ruined. But look what he says. Look what he says in um, Isaiah 6 verse 8. He says this. He says, and I heard of the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then he said, here I, here I am, send me. Right? Is that, is that our heart? Do we so fear God that whatever it is that he asks us to do, that we say, here I am, send me, right? Realizing that it's not even about me, but I'm willing, right? I put my yes on the table. I'm willing to go and to do what he's called me to do. 
can we trust that God's going to bring about his plan, that we get to be a part of his plan? And I hope that's where your heart's at today. I want to share one more Henry Blackaby quote before, uh, before we get into our, into our groups for one final question. But he says, Henry Blackaby says this, he says, Will God ever ask you to do something that you're not able to do? The answer is yes, all the time. It must be that way for God's glory and kingdom. If we function according to our own ability alone, to our ability alone, we get the glory. If we function according to the power of the Spirit within us, God gets the glory. He wants to reveal himself to a watching world. I think that has to be our heart as we think about our role in all of that. Do I fear God so much that he gets the glory and I don't? Right? So last question I want us to talk about today before we, before we kind of conclude is this. Would you say that you fear God? As we've defined it this morning, as we've talked about what it means to have this, this fear and respect and reverence of God, would you say that that's true in your life? And the second question is, what areas in your life do you need to give over to him, right? What areas of your life do you need to live through the lens of fearing God? I think, I think one, of the, one of the things we talked about was how, you know, when we, when we don't truly see God living in us as our source for everything, it's really easy to make everything look fearful, right? It's easy to be afraid of everything, but when we realize that it's the power of Christ in us, that's living, and it's not about me. It's not about me inviting that friend. It's not about me having that hard conversation or doing this or that. But it's God in me, and I just let him live through me. I just become a vessel for him to use. Um, man, it just it, this is such a game changer for what it means to fear God and to be uh, courageous and to, to trust him. Um, so I want to I wanted to wrap up today by looking at the last verse, and um, I wanted to save that to the end because I think it it just kind of drives home a, a point. Um, so verse twelve, I didn't forget about that as I was reading, but um, look what look what this is a pagan king writing back. And look what he says. He says, "May the God who has caused His name to dwell there overflow overthrow any king or people who shall put out His hand to alter this." Or to destroy the house of God that is in Jerusalem. I Darius make a decree. Uh, let it be done with all diligence. Right? May the God who has caused his name to dwell there. And I just ask, like, is that is that our story? Like, like, does God's name dwell on us? Right? Does everything that I do come back to the place of, of God being a part of my story? Um, is everything about me, is the most important thing about me God? Right? Or, or is it something else? Um, does God's name dwell among, among me as, as his child? Is that, is that what, what people know me for? Is that what drives them? You know, we always want to drive to the gospel. Whenever, whenever we, we come to Scripture, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, we always want to drive to the gospel. And so as we look at the fear of God, we see that there's this beautiful picture that Christ becomes um, that safe haven for us. And so if you guys will go back in your minds with me to that picture of the storm, right? And imagine that you're in the storm and that you're surrounded by the majesty of God, the power and the fear of God, right? And now I want us to think about the cross and what Jesus did for us. And that provides that place that we can see the majesty of God um, and have that kind of fear of trembling and reverence and awe of God. 
but not cower because of what Christ did for us. Right? That's what the cross becomes for us. The cross becomes this place, this, this empty tomb where Christ has conquered death and, and, and all that goes along with that. Now we no longer have to sit there and fear death and fear these things, but we can sit safely in this place and trust in God. Um, and so that's, that's the challenge, I think, for us today as we, as we kind of walk out of here, as we look at, at the fear of God. What does it mean to fear God in our lives? Um, do we truly truly get to a place where we trust God? Do we truly get to a place where now we can walk in courage? Are we truly in a place where, um, because of what Christ did for us, um, that, that no matter what God calls us to do, that we can go out and accomplish it for his purpose and for his plan? So let me, uh, let me pray for us as we close, and then uh, we're going we're gonna to join in one more song uh, to kind of wrap up and just to sing praises back to him. So God, thank you for today. Thank you for this time. Thank you for being uh, among us. Thank you for your word that it uh, teaches us truth. Um, Father, I pray for each one of us that as um, we feel, um, God, from time to time, as, as life gets heavy and things get hard, um, God, as we have challenges in our lives, as we go through hard times in our lives, God, I pray that we come back to a place of trusting you more, of um, God seeing you in our lives more than, um, God, than we worry about the circumstances or the situations. I pray for those of us today that are going through a hard time, that are going through that situation, whether it be loneliness, whether it be uh, a challenging situation, whether it be worry for somebody else. Father, I just pray that we could just wrap all of that in our trust for you and understanding that you're big enough. God, you're big enough to handle that. You're big enough to carry that. Um, Father, you carried the weight of the cross. Um, Jesus, you carry that on your shoulders. So whatever we go through, God, we, we know that there's nothing bigger um, in our lives than what you have already done for us. God, so we praise you. We're going to sing praises to you for that. God, we're going to thank you, uh, Father, for what you've done and what you're going to do. God, we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.